Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas is a best-selling author, speaker and one of, if not the, foremost Bitcoin and blockchain experts in the world. He is one of the rare experts who approach the subject from an educational, political, cultural and human perspective, not merely discussing the technology in investment terms. In 2014, Andreas authored the groundbreaking book Mastering Bitcoin, which is widely considered to be the best technical guide ever written about the technology. His second book, The Internet of Money, unveiled the why of Bitcoin and became a bestseller. He is a teaching fellow at the University of Nicosia, the first university in the world to offer a master's degree in digital currency. And finally, he serves on the oversight committee for the Bitcoin reference rate at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and has appeared as an expert witness in hearings around the world, including both the Australian and Canadian Senate Banking Committees, where he gave historically important presentations that have influenced public policy regarding Bitcoin globally. Andreas, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for saying yes. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, Greece, Cyprus, Spain, Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, India, Turkey, Pakistan, and the Ukraine. What, what do those countries all have in common? What they have in common is that uh, either through experimentation or failure in policy, they're all experiencing a uh, crisis that has originated with their currency. So an economic crisis that has either originated or affected the, the value of the currency uh, or is tied into the value of the currency that um, has created a, a very destructive economic phenomenon. So in the case of uh, Greece and Cyprus, you have uh, the euro, uh, which um, has to have a single interest rate that covers the whole of the European Union. So uh, in order to prevent getting inflation in a rapidly moving economy, um, you have situations where the interest rates are set uh, in a way that doesn't give any growth to slower economies. So that's one example. But also, um, you know, as we've seen in places like Venezuela, Zimbabwe and others, um, we have uh, again and again these uh, crises of hyperinflation where uh, prices are increasing so rapidly that uh, supermarkets, for example, um, change their prices several times per day just to keep up with inflation. And what this reveals is that money is one of those things that as long as it's working, you cannot, you can afford not to pay any attention to it or even care how it works. But once it stops working, it affects almost everything in a modern society and creates complete economic chaos. Uh, and, you know, it's in that world that uh, Bitcoin was born. If the government can watch every time you spend money, their ability to control your behavior is enormous. How so? How, what Can you describe that link for me? So uh, part of the problem we're facing as modern societies is that since the 1970s, um, governments around the world have tried to exert more and more control um, over financial transactions. And so, it, you know, the average person in the street uh, may be appalled at the idea that, as Snowden revealed, uh, you know, many of our phone calls are being monitored. Um, but they don't even bat an eyelid uh, about the fact that the U.S. government, uh, for example, completely legally 
uh, monitors financial transactions, every uh, debit card transaction you do, every credit card transaction you do, your checking account, all of that's available without warrants um, to not just our government, but um, cross-fed into every intelligence agency in the world. So half the intelligence agencies of the Allies are listening and sharing on the same financial data. And then presumably the other half are hacking into the same systems and getting a copy too. So no matter where you live in the world, every financial transaction you do through the traditional banking system is under complete and total surveillance uh, 24-7. And that's a fact that most people don't even pay attention to. So what happens if uh, governments can monitor all of your financial transactions? Well, a lot of the traditional freedoms we consider uh, essential to democratic living, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of expression and political participation, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. A lot of these are predicated to a certain extent on the ability to act without uh, being under surveillance and therefore being punished for your actions. So if someone can watch where you spend your money, they can watch where you go uh, because they can see the locations you visit. They can uh, decipher your political affiliations, associations with various groups uh, and activities. And so a lot of the other freedoms that we take for granted can be very easily curtailed. Um, they don't have to stop you from speaking, but they can impose a very severe punishment if you speak against uh, specific ideas or uh, the government can um, starve uh, political parties of funding by um, threatening people who spend money in certain ways. And so all of the these um, scenarios arise because um, we, we can't have free and democratic societies under totalitarian surveillance of financial transactions. And so that's where we are today. That's the crossroads we're at. If your government isn't behaving democratically, what they can do is they can erase your financial life with the with a click of a button, and and suddenly you have no money, <laughs> and you, you can't uh, you can't buy food. Uh, that's a very powerful political tool. Okay, so the internet enabled the free flow of information, and this idea of information flowing freely. This is absolutely like Halloween. This is ter- terrifying for anyone who wanted to control communication. Bitcoin enables the free flow of value, and so this idea of the free flow of value. This is likewise terrifying for anyone who wants to control your money. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's a bit worse than that. Maybe we can terrify them a bit more. What Bitcoin does is it doesn't just enable the free flow of value. It turns value into information and therefore enables the free flow of value because we have the free flow of information and makes it impossible to stop the movement of money unless you also stop the movement of all information. So it puts them on an equal footing, meaning that as long as there is free movement of information and money is now information, money can move freely anywhere in the world too, and you can't stop it. Interesting. So this is the whole idea of the democratization of money, decentralized, rather than these central figures holding all the power, you know, your JP Morgans, your Morgan Stanleys, it is decentralized. So there's no any single holders who are in all the power. Yeah, the, the, the idea of these systems is to um, spread, spread the control and power out among hundreds of thousands of participants so that no one is in control, uh, much like there are companies that own parts of the Internet, but there are no companies that own all of the Internet or can control the flow of information across it. And so the same thing applies with digital currencies. Now, 
given that fact, given that this is now reality, um, a lot of governments are kind of beating the drum that this is the end of civilization as we know it, and we will descend into crime, chaos, anarchy, and terrorism because money can flow freely, which is ironic because um, for thousands of years, we have had completely untraceable uh, peer-to-peer transfer of money uh, through the form of cash. For thousands of years, the idea that every transaction could be surveilled was ridiculous because the vast majority of money movement involved uh, cash between, between individuals. And for many years, the money wasn't even national. It was transnational forms of money like gold coins that could be redeemed anywhere, right? And so um, somehow we survived that as a species, this incredibly destructive uh, freedom of commerce. We survived that as a species. But what happened is sometime around the 1970s, it became uh, within grasp for governments to develop this dream of being able to control uh, and surveil all money because money started becoming digital. And uh, because it was digital and centralized, uh, that combination gave governments the possibility that they could uh, control money. And and as a result, what governments did was they started finding more and more reasons why government needed to control the flow of money. Uh, Starts with terrorism, the worst crimes, and then eventually it goes down to the petty crimes. And then finally, you know, we drop all the pretense and it's just about power. Uh, and control over people. And so uh, every every crime that happens is justification for more control and power until eventually you've got this almost unanimous consensus where governments now around the world are trying to eradicate cash, um, force all transactions into centralized digital controlled systems um, where they have the ultimate control. And they have all kinds of reasons. For example, uh, controlling inflation or controlling deflation by being able to adjust the interest rate uh, on all of your money and not giving you an exit of any kind. And so all of these, of course, are only done for benign reasons for your own safety. Um, But, you know, history tells us that when you give humans that much power over you uh, for your own safety, they end up using it for their own power and uh, bad things happen. Bitcoin is not going after just replacing national currencies. It's it's doing something far more dangerous. It's it's encouraging people to put their savings completely outside the system altogether. There is there is no system, is there? Well, I mean, Bitcoin is is not trying to replace currency at all. What it's doing is it's changing the fundamental model from one in which there are 194 national currencies, each aligned with a nation state and a flag. Um, pretty much like, you know, remember the old airlines where each country had its airline and the, the tail of the plane had the flag of the nation and it's all very patriotic. <laughs> um, also very inefficient, corrupt, uh, and anti-competitive. Um, and so that's the world we live in with currencies where we've grown up with this model that currencies correspond entirely to, uh, one government and, and you have to be patriotic about your money, which is ridiculous. Of course, money is a mechanism of commerce. It's not, a national symbol. Uh, and when you use it as a national symbol, it actually ruins its uh, commercial uh, value. So um, what Bitcoin is trying to do is move us into a world in which humans have choice to use whichever transfer value they want or store value they want. Uh, Bitcoin and thousands of other digital currencies that have emerged in its wake. Uh, so we're going from a world in which there are national currencies and you only get to use the one you were born in 
uh, to a world in which there are thousands of currencies and you get to use whichever one you want and no one can stop you. Uh, and part of that idea is that if the government's currency, the national currency, is being, in, is being used to engage in geopolitical games or trade wars or currency wars with other countries to, to great destructive uh, effect on the national wealth and the well-being of your own family, you can say, okay, folks, why don't you carry on with your geopolitics? I'm going to take my wealth and I'm going to put it outside of that game uh, in something that's neutral and mathematical and is not playing a nationalist game. Um, and you can go play off with your hyperinflation and your trade wars. I'm just going to opt out. How about that? Um, but of course, that terrifies governments because the ability of citizens to simply opt out from those geopolitical games means they can't play those games anymore. Because if sufficient numbers of people opt out, then you have no power, right? So um, it changes the very nature of money. It says, I'm going to take this pawn off the global chessboard. I'm not playing that game anymore. Um, you know, people can essentially declare um, their independence. Uh, from a monetary system that's tied to a single nation and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of that. I'm a cosmopolitan. I'm part of a world family, and I'm going to engage with commerce with the entire world without any of those games. And so obviously that's a huge um, incentive for those, those governments to actually to add value, to provide value. Otherwise, so it's, it's got to be that value exchange because... Or you think they have to compete unthinkable right uh and, and this is one of the really ironic things is that you hear all of this uh negative sentiment towards uh bitcoin and open blockchains and other digital uh currencies and what all of these boil down to is that governments are uh afraid to compete because they can't compete against uh against the value of cryptocurrencies because they're carrying all of this baggage and banks aren't interested in competing either uh, it's ironic that what Bitcoin has demonstrated in the world banking system is that banks are actually afraid of free markets um, because having a monopoly or oligopoly cartel control over money is much more lucrative than having to compete in an open free market. So um, Bitcoin is showing that the banks are afraid of capitalism, which is very ironic. <laughs> You've said that the misconception that people have about Bitcoin is that it's all about money. It's it's a lot more than that. Uh, it's not about uh, money of the internet. It's about rather creating an internet of money, uh, an open network where value can be exchanged across hundreds or thousands of currencies um, for a variety of applications, uh, some which are strictly financial, some which are not. There are many applications. Once you have a network that uh, can be trusted and isn't controlled by anyone and can transmit value, you can apply it to other things. One example is using it for voting that can be recorded accurately and cannot be falsified. So you can create a, a trusted network for people to vote. Um, you can use it to uh, do governance and, and management of corporations. You can use it to to raise funds for charitable causes. Um, Immigrants can use it to send money home, uh, and people can use it for the traditional banking applications of uh, storing uh, money and making payments to anyone they want. The, the basic fundamental premise of being able to include all seven and a half billion people on this planet into a open uh, economy where everyone can participate without restrictions, one single global economy, without restrictions, without borders, without uh, race, ethnicity, nation, religion, and all of these other handicaps we have and um, impediments to global commerce. Since 
2008 or 2010, in the last sort of eight to 10 years, it's, it's been attacked from all sorts of angles and it is remarkably resilient. Do people realize just how resilient it was going to be or what's, what's the feelings within the community? I was surprised myself as to how resilient this system has proven to be and how it survived all kinds of not just attacks, but also problems and calamities and technical errors and bugs and security attacks and all of these things. But at the end of the day, you got to realize that the thing that makes something like Bitcoin unique, um, it's not magical technology. It's, it's the way it's architected by spreading out power and spreading out information so that it, uh, so that it, uh, kind of emerges from this collaboration of hundreds of thousands of computers. Um, there is no one place you can attack that holds the keys or that is the most important system. There is no most important system. They're all important and they're all unimportant at the same time, which means that there's nowhere to push against in order to exert power over the system. And as a result, um, because you have this dynamic and very flexible network, if you take down parts of it, other parts jump up to fill in the gaps. And the information just continues to flow, just like the Internet. So, you know, you can take down parts of the Internet for part of the time, but you can't take down all of the Internet for all time. Um, And the same thing applies to Bitcoin. Because it's this decentralized network, you can take down parts of Bitcoin, and you can disrupt its operation and delay it and do various things like that for part of the time. But what happens is that every time an attack like that happens, the system evolves a tiny bit and becomes more resilient so that next time that same attack doesn't work anymore. Kind of like the immune system of a human, right? Once you get a specific virus, you develop immunity to it so you don't get as sick the next time you get that virus. And so the same thing applies here. It's dynamic and flexible systems show this kind of behavior where the more they're attacked, the stronger they get. Uh, and we've seen that with Bitcoin. It's been a bit of a surprise how resilient it is. I guess that's what's so interesting and also maybe so different from um, movements in the past where, say, there's a very clear leader or, you know, a head of a movement. You know, the uh, if you look at history, you know, just assassinations after assassinations taking out the head and hoping that's going to disrupt the same thing but the fact that there is no leader there is no single figure that you can just remove it's it's like a web it's this decentralized thing then (laughs) you can understand from people who wouldn't want it to be around how this would be a terrifying enemy yeah you can't buy it you can't sue it you can't shut it down you can't shoot at it you can't decapitate it you can't remove the leader because there is no leader um yeah, uh, modern technology has now created systems uh, that uh, simply exist, and they exist as long as two people are willing to continue to run the software and um, evade attempts to shut them down. And there will always be enough people who are interested in doing that with uh, digital currencies. So we've entered a new phase of, of history, uh, a phase in which Private money that is global, neutral, uncensorable, uh, completely borderless, and open for anyone to access, not only exists, but will continue to exist for long periods of time, uninterrupted and unimpeded by governments. And this is a fact. And so now, as a society, we adjust to that fact. And we say, okay, so what kind of world can we build now that that capability exists? Because you can't 
undo that. You just have to accept that it is a fact. Um, and that's going to take some, some getting used to, uh, especially for governments that uh, felt that their authority and power to control and surveil money was absolute. And now they're discovering it's, it's not so absolute. You've mentioned a couple of things already, but maybe can you just give me a couple more examples how Bitcoin could lead to a more fair and just world, in your opinion? I think the place we start with is stepping out of the perspective of Western developed nations with uh, sufficiently open uh, banking and sufficiently democratic uh, governments. So the experience that you have um, in Britain or the experience that I have in the United States, because you might assume that is the norm, that is the normal experience, and it's not. Um, so the idea that you have a currency that isn't, uh, that maintains its value relatively well, that isn't volatile, that isn't being manipulated for a variety of reasons, a banking system that is fair and open and isn't, uh, stealing from you directly. Um, and a government that somehow in many cases represents the will of the majority at least, and, and is not some kind of rogue criminal organization. That's great if you have that. Um, so maybe 15% of the people on this planet have that. And then the other 85% don't have that. What they have is criminal governments in collusion with criminal banks that are organized crime and uh, that are manipulating currencies and mismanaging currencies to the point that those currencies uh, are not only not conducive to, to doing basic commerce and economic activity and saving for the future, but are actively undermining those capabilities in a society. Um, so people see their, their wealth of the last generation disappear overnight because of devaluation or hyperinflation or currency crisis as the next dictatorship steps in line to take over mismanagement of their country and hands another nice handout to their criminal bankster friends. And this is, this is the norm. That is what most of the world experiences. Um, two and a half billion people around the world have no access to banking whatsoever. They're classified as unbanked, according to the World Bank and uh, various other international organizations. This is only counting heads of household, adult age heads of household. It doesn't count their spouses, their children. If you count them, and if you then take that measure further and you say, well, okay, so maybe you have access to a bank account, but it's a limited access bank account that you can only use one currency and you can't export money from your country and you can't get paid from abroad or send a payment abroad. Uh, and it's very limited in its function and expensive. Uh, how many people have that? Uh, so at that point, you're, you're already into the uh, five, six, uh, six and a half billion people who have this very limited capability for financial activity outside of their borders. Um, and this is, a, this is a world in which Bitcoin lands. Uh, it's a world in which we can, within the next decade, on a very simple platform like a $25 Android phone, give every person on this planet the ability to have the same level of banking that a, an executive at J.P. Morgan Chase has, the same level of banking that a Swiss banker has. Um, banking with privacy, with international reach, 
at very low cost with very high levels of security, uh, protecting them from confiscation and corruption and all of the other things that happen with traditional systems uh, and give them the reach to uh, send and receive money anywhere in the world, any time of the day or night, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for pennies per transaction or even less. Um, and that changes the world. That is that is something that uh, completely changes the nature of international commerce. What are you most excited about? Um, I'm most excited about um, gradually seeing this technology reach people who are uh, in places where there's um, where there's uh, conflict, uh, economic crisis, and poverty. Now we're not at that stage yet. So, you know, to be honest. There's a big gap between the vision I have for this technology and where we are today. Uh, if you if you ask, well, who's using Bitcoin today? Is it um, a Kenyan farmer who's trying to uh, receive money to plant seeds um, in this uh, year's harvest? No, it's it's a white male from San Francisco who has a degree in computer science and is a geek in a privileged situation with lots of spare money to spend on investing in this new technology that's the truth but that gap can be bridged and we've i've seen this before um i remember getting my first cell phone which was um which was the size of a brick so about this big and then you had to pull the antenna out to make it double the size and it lasted about 25 minutes per call and it cost over a thousand dollars and when i was carrying that thing around me in london as a student in the early uh, 90s Pretty much the only other people who had cellular telephones were rich business people, right? I was a geek, so I spent the extra money because I wanted to be part of that communication revolution. But I was a rarity. The vast majority of people who had that phone were rich business people. And if you said at the time, my vision for cell phones is that one day a farmer in Kenya will have a cellular telephone and be able to communicate with people around the world, it seemed weird and even bizarre that you would make such a claim because it's an expensive piece of technology with very limited coverage. But think about where we are today. If you see a businessman holding a phone, they're not very important. Uh, important businessmen have their secretaries hold their phone. They don't actually touch a phone. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's flipped completely, right? Who wears a Bluetooth headset nowadays? Your plumber does right? You won't see a senior executive wearing a Bluetooth headset anymore. And now, of course, the Kenyan farmer does have a little Nokia cell phone that they charge on a solar panel that connects them to the world. And it only costs like $20 to acquire. And it's something they can afford because it gives them an enormous amount of freedom. So I, I believe we're going to see that same transition. This is the, the basic arc of democratization of technology, the idea that the technology gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and easier to use until the benefits of having that technology so far exceed the price to acquire that technology that it becomes very, very widespread. Um, now, imagine one day if that same Kenyan farmer who has a $20 Nokia phone today that gives them communication with the world can replace that with a $25 Android phone, for example, that gives them the ability to be uh, a banker uh, for their entire village, to originate loans, to receive remittances from abroad, to send wire transfers, to store capital, uh, to um, 
to trade in commodities, um, uh, for example, buying seeds uh, for next season uh, digitally and remotely from a, a much cheaper seller of seeds that's a couple of counties over or a couple of uh, areas over, which they wouldn't be able to do before, right? Um, so all of that suddenly means bringing a lot of power and freedom to people around the world. That's where I hope to see us going. If that's the sort of medium-term vision, what is, I guess, some of the most outlandish moonshot shoot for the stars? Have you heard anything, any any crazy, but who knows, predictions, long-term, long-term? Well, yes, once you appreciate that, you know, at a very basic level, this is an open system of money and anyone can access it and it's not centralized and it's global and all of that. that great. That's one aspect. The other aspect of this is that this is a form of completely digital programmable money um, that has different characteristics from anything we've seen before. One of those characteristics is that every form of ownership uh, that we have today is only restricted to humans, meaning that as a human, you can own and control money, but um, inanimate objects cannot own and control money. Software cannot own and control money. With digital currencies and programmable money like Bitcoin, inanimate objects and software systems can be the direct owners and controllers of money. Uh, AI, robots, uh, self-driving cars, your fridge uh, can be a node in an electronic network of money and control money on its own, independently of humans. Um, so you can imagine a self-driving car, for example, that operates as part of a taxi fleet uh, that isn't owned by other humans, but instead um, owns itself and manages its economic affairs, earns money by giving humans rides and uses that money to pay for maintenance, uh, energy to ch recharge itself and, and perhaps even upgrade its own uh, vehicle. Uh, and, and this sounds outlandish, I'm sure. Um, but you can also imagine a future in which you could do transactions that uh, are not even in the realm of possible. So you can change the basic time scale and granularity of finance. Uh, imagine if you could send someone a millionth of a penny every millionth of a second. Um, okay. and, and now imagine what kind of financial applications are opened up if you could do that. So, for example, um, uh, imagine if uh, you paid for a service by the second instead of by the month. Um, you can change the very nature of, of payments. So you get into uh, an Uber. Uh, do you need to pay car insurance for a month uh, in order to do that Uber ride? Or could you pay car insurance for the 165 seconds it takes you to go the four blocks that you got in for? Why not pay for 165 seconds of car insurance? Um, and and Or uh, pay for the three seconds of light you use. Um, so you can actually change some of the parameters of how we think about money from something that happens discreetly in large amounts. So you get your salary once a month. Why would you get your salary once a month? Why not have your salary stream into your own wallet every minute you work? Uh, and th this concept I call streaming money, uh, and it, it changes your perspective of exactly what could happen in, in a future where micropayments are possible, where you can make payments that are so small and at such frequency that money becomes more of a flow instead of a chunk. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. 
I love stuff like this. Honestly, I'm just smiling because I just I love sort of this kind of stuff. If people are not thinking of the implications of what happens with programmable money like that, um, they're also not thinking about the implications of what happens when you truly globalize commerce and you make it possible for uh, people to raise funds and coordinate human activity on a massive scale. Um, you know, we've seen how the internet made it possible. Uh, to have the emergence of global movements um, that transcend borders and connect people across geographies with common interests from uh, things like the environmental movements so that has gone to a whole other level now that you have collaboration of people from around the world, regardless of what their governments are doing. People are getting together and communicating about global issues like climate and the environment and things like that. And these are creating a kind of global consciousness where we as humans are appreciating the fact that we are uh, facing these problems together and that we're not expecting a government to solve them for us. But you see this activism on a global basis. You have um, protests happening in, in, in Turkey and you have simultaneous support protests breaking out in a hundred countries around the world where people are, are expressing their, their solidarity. What happens when one of these protests has the ability or one of these movements or one of these associations or one of these humans activities has the ability to fundraise in common across the globe? Um, imagine an environmental movement that could raise a trillion dollars from individual donations and build a global movement with that kind of funding. Imagine political movements that transcend a single country and that can raise the money to support themselves. I mean, the idea of globalization so far has been primarily the purview of very large multinational countries that can take advantage of globalization to find the best way to avoid taxes and operate outside and above the purview of governments and laws. Um, and these uh, like giant vampire companies, uh, which are immortal and amoral, uh, can act outside of the confines of society. But we as individuals, we are not yet globalized. We have not yet applied globalization to our societies. What happens when individuals start doing globalization? And they can. Uh, and that changes the world quite substantially. That is a shift of power uh, towards... Um, the ability of global individuals to act in concert with other global individuals and, and, and wield power far greater than both the nation state and uh, multinational corporations. I guess we're seeing just the the early stages of that, just in this, the increase in the sort of the peer-to-peer, -peer, the crowdsourcing, the crowdfunding thing, people Absolutely. coming together. And so that magnified, I mean, it could totally lead to what you were just saying. So interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. When, when you were talking a, a second ago about um, the difference between uh, our money and it being like just flow, like maybe salary flow versus chunk, it, it completely flips our whole relationship to how we view time, just time as an essence, as in terms of rather than it being just clock time, 24 hours a day, quite a linear thing, it, it, would, it would change the way we interact with time itself, which is, which is just kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, but well, once you once you overcome the the bottom three layers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, then um, the, the relationship between money and time becomes very evident. Meaning that money is a means by which you can free up your time, uh, or vice versa. Um, 
it's it, you, one of the one of the most destructive aspects of of poverty is that you're left with no time to do anything other than survive and you spend all of your time in basic survival mode and it's not until you solve those basic needs that you have time but you know if you look at uh human history our perception of time has been changing for the last uh three or four hundred years in a very 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 um rapid way so we went from a granularity of seasons to granularity of months days minutes hours you know uh and now we actually perceive minutes and seconds as meaningful things that weren't even meaningful in the past and you know perhaps one way to look at human civilization and the development of technology is that constant uh, repositioning of our relationship to time and our ability to perceive time in ever smaller increments. Uh, and this might be one more step in that direction. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Um, a fulfilled life uh, to me means uh, being able to do today the things that are important to me without uh, hesitation, without fear of the future, um, without um, postponement, um, and without... Uh, uh, losing focus of what's important today. And I'm very fortunate that I get to live uh, my life that way. I don't assume I'm going to be around next year to enjoy uh, life. It's it's now, and it's not a dress rehearsal. This is the actual act. Um, and so that that to me is is very important for my fulfillment. And what is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? And I'm not sure I'm the right person to be uh, giving life advice, but uh, you know, when it when it comes to these technologies, a lot of people see them as potential investments, uh, and I think that's a very risky way to look at this stuff because investments can go up in value and can go down in value, et cetera. Instead, I look at skills as the most important investment you can make, which is educating yourself and developing some new skills that are unique skills that other people don't have. And one of the ways to address this technology is to look at it as an opportunity to build some new useful skills. Um, and those skills cannot be taken away from you. They cannot lose uh, value. They're uh, applicable and relevant in a variety of circumstances in your life and can enrich your life. Uh, and so that's the best investment you can make in general in life is education. Last but not least, how can people find out more? Where can we send them? How can they learn more about what you're up to? Um, so there's uh, probably three places where you can find uh, most about me. My website, antonoplus.com. You can find more than 300 videos I've done about Bitcoin and open blockchains on YouTube. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. Of and course, you can buy my books on Amazon, but you don't have to. I'm going to chuck some links underneath this, underneath the website, um, on the website, spiritpig.com. Underneath this interview, I'm going to chuck all those links you just said, and they'll direct you in the right place. Andreas, thank you so much. This is really, really interesting. I've, um, you, you somehow managed to, uh, I guess some of the previous videos I've watched and other stuff, I, I often leave more confused and you managed to distill the essence and what's truly important underneath just the technology. So thank you for coming on and uh, explaining all this stuff and, and putting up with my questions. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to, to reach a new audience and, and just share my enthusiasm and passion about this technology with as many people as possible. So thanks for the opportunity.